In the fall of 2017, residents in the town of Peshtigo, a small town on Lake Michigan's Green Bay in northeast Wisconsin, began to receive some official-looking letters. Yeah, what actually happened in November of 2017, a bunch of neighbors in the town of Peshtigo got this letter from Tyco Johnson Controls saying, we believe we've had contamination leave our site via groundwater and we'd like if we could come and sample your wells. And at the time I had, you know, dozens of neighbors call me because they knew me and my background. I grew up here and they said, geez, Jeff, what, what do we do? You know, what, what should I do? And I said, let them sample your well. That's Jeff Lamont. Jeff's a retired contaminant hydrogeologist who lives in the area. Tyco Johnson Controls, which ran a firefighting foam manufacturing facility nearby, wanted to test the water that Jeff's neighbors were drinking. These letters, and the results that those tests ended up finding, it changed everything. So when they did extend the plume and we got our letter, um, it was a Friday, as often their overnight FedEx letters come, it hit me. Like, we had obviously cared, we were concerned, but once I got that letter, it was like a ton of bricks of, no, you need to take action now. And I spent that weekend calling absolutely anyone who would listen to me about PFOS. PFOS. PFOA. P-F-M-O-P-R-A. P-F-M-O-B-A. This season, we're going deep into the story of PFAS, the so-called forever chemical, and how it spreads through the hidden systems that all culminate in the water that comes out of your tap. This is Under Our Feet, and I'm your host, Rudy Molinick. Before we get on to the show, a quick reminder that the best way to support Under Our Feet is to support us on Patreon. There's a link at our website, uofpod.org. Starting at just a dollar a month, get access to exclusive perks like bonus content, insider updates, and merch like t-shirts and bumper stickers. Again, check out the link to Patreon on our website, uofpod.org. Also, take a moment to rate and review the show or forward it on to a friend. That's the best way to help us grow our audience. Okay, on to today's episode. We're definitely not done with the story of Peshtigo, and we'll keep coming back to it throughout this season. For now, though, we're going to explore PFAS, that's P-F-A-S, its chemistry and its history, and why it's become one of the most pervasive chemicals of our time. It's everywhere. We know that 98% of people have it in their blood. So what are PFAS, and why do you and I have it floating around in our bodies? PFAS, P-F-A-S, stands for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, and there are thousands of them. Uh, The number of these chemicals increases. So I've seen estimates over 6,000 different PFAS. You know, we don't know how many of these chemicals are. PFAS are great because they are heat-resistant, water-resistant, oil-resistant, and really stable. Uh, They're used in firefighting foams. In your Teflon pants. You know, waterproof fabrics, Gore-Tex boots. Microwave popcorn bags or fast food wrappers. So they're everywhere. Because of how much you hear about PFAS in the news these days, 
it might seem like they've been around forever. But they're still a pretty young compound in the grand scheme of things. It's kind of crazy how quickly something can go from unknown to so pervasive that it's in 98% of Americans' blood. A hundred years ago, the industrial use of fluorinated compounds was barely a twinkle in a chemist's eyes. In the 1880s, fluorine was first isolated in France. Then, a Belgian named Frederick Schwartz discovered he could replace chlorine with fluorine in a chemical called carbon tetrachloride, which is a carbon with four chlorine atoms around it. But there wasn't really any industrial use for this for a while. At least not until the late 1920s, when people started wanting to keep their food cold at home in their brand new refrigerators. When refrigeration was coming into its own, all the household refrigerators used refrigerants, and the basic ones that they used were ammonia or sulfur dioxide. They were very good refrigerants. You could run all your refrigerators now on those either of those two compounds. That's Paul Resnick. I have been working in fluorine chemistry for a long time. After his PhD from Cornell in 1960 and a postdoc in Berkeley until 1962, Paul worked at DuPont for his entire career researching fluorine chemistry. Let's get back to those early refrigerators. There was a big problem. They tended to leak occasionally and in closed spaces. And ammonia and SO2 are very, very toxic. And they would lose people. In fact, for just one little example of this, in just a few months in 1929 in Chicago, at least 15 people died because the refrigerant in their home refrigerators leaked. The New York Times ran the headline, Ice Machine Gas Kills 15 in Chicago. Leaks in refrigeration plants in homes held cause of mysterious deaths! Exclamation point. Refrigeration manufacturers were getting really bad press, and they needed to make a change. So there was a search on, essentially started, would you believe, by General Motors in the late 1920s. And the solution? It was found by a person at General Motors by the name of Midgley, Thomas Midgley. Side note here, that's the same guy that realized you could add lead to gasoline to stop knocking in car engines. What he found for a new refrigerant relied on that fluorine substitution chemistry that Frederick Schwartz had discovered in Belgium a few decades earlier. Midgley and General Motors ended up with... Chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, and they made superb refrigerants. They were inert, they were non-toxic, They were relatively easy, well, relatively easy to make. So in the late 20s, early 1930s, General Motors teamed up with DuPont to produce CFCs to use as refrigerants, making what they called Freon. We'll get back to how this ties into the story with PFAS here in a second, but it's worth taking a second to appreciate this moment in history. For the first time, refrigerators were becoming common in everyday households, At the time those 15 people died from refrigerant leaks in 1929 in Chicago, the city's population was over 3 million. But there were only 60 to 75,000 refrigerators in Chicago homes. They were still really rare. In the 1930s, because of the development of Freon as a refrigerant that didn't oppose an immediate deadly risk, home refrigerators became ubiquitous. 
But just because they weren't toxic within homes doesn't mean CFCs were the silver bullet for refrigeration. If that acronym has been tickling something in your memory, it's because CFCs are now pretty much banned. They still leaked from refrigerators, and even though they weren't killing us directly, they still had some issues. As these CFCs got into the atmosphere, they would be decomposed, and the chlorine that came off would decompose the ozone in the atmosphere, destroying the ozone layer. I find it really interesting that Thomas Midgley, working at General Motors, is known for two big innovations, putting lead in gasoline to stop engine knocking, and putting CFCs in refrigerators to replace highly toxic refrigerants. Both of those things are now totally banned and had terrible consequences for human and environmental health. But they also solved big problems, which really gets at a central tension in industrial chemical development, one that we'll return to in later episodes. Back to PFAS. To start, let's hear the origin story of one of the most common ones, one you probably have in your kitchen right now. Polytetrafluoroethylene, PTFE, also known by its trade name, Teflon. Long about 1937 or 38, there was a, a relatively young chemist at DuPont who was working on looking at new chlorofluorocarbon refrigerants, name of Roy Plunkett. And he was in his lab and he was trying to make some refrigerants. And the starting material that he had was tetrafluoroethylene. Tetrafluoroethylene, that's a gas whose molecules, if you were to zoom way in, have two carbon atoms bonded to each other in the center, surrounded by a little halo of four fluorine atoms. It's a colorless, odorless gas usually. And he had a cylinder of it, and, well, there's some wonder, wonderful stories about this. He had a cylinder of it, and he wanted to open the cylinder to take some out to do a reaction. And they opened the cylinder, and nothing came out. But Plunkett and the people working with him weighed the cylinder, which is a metal tube that stores gases. If you're old enough to remember when grocery stores gave out balloons, you'll remember the big metal cylinder full of helium they used to fill those balloons. When Plunkett weighed his cylinder, he could tell there was still stuff in it, because it weighed more than an empty cylinder should, but nothing was coming out. Now the question is, who decided to cut the cylinder open? We don't know to this day. I mean, I knew Roy. I mean, I had he was ending his career as I was starting. So I had met Roy quite a few times, knew him. I didn't have the guts as a young person to ask him. But anyhow, they opened this thing and found this white powder. What had been gas, a colorless, odorless gas, had somehow turned into a white powder coating the inside of the cylinder. And the decision not to just throw out this powder, not to ditch the seemingly defective cylinder, open up a new one and move on, well, it kind of changed the world. But his genius was not finding this white powder. The fact that he looked at its properties and discovered it didn't dissolve in anything, it didn't react with anything, it was impervious to a lot of stuff. In other words, Plunkett saw that this powder could be useful for an industrial chemical company, and boy was it. This was essentially PTFE or Teflon. That's how Teflon got discovered. And it turns out it's a fantastic lubricant 
You can coat things with it, and it's inert to almost all chemicals. Teflon, the basis for nonstick cookware since 1961, when inventor Marion Trizzolo produced the Happy Pan, the first Teflon-coated nonstick pan. More immediately, though, in the 1930s and 40s? It turned out it was very useful in the Manhattan Project because when you do gaseous diffusion to get uranium-235 with UF6 and you had all these highly reactive materials, this stuff wouldn't react with it and you can make materials from it. Meanwhile, in a lab in Penn State University, Joe Simons figured out how to take a hydrocarbon, which is a molecule consisting of bonds between carbon and hydrogen atoms, and force fluorine to replace the hydrogens. This eventually was taken over by 3M, and that is where PFOS and all the derivatives and Scotchgard and all that derive from. And the industrial production of per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances was off to the races. So you have those things going on in history. That's a timeline of how some of the most pervasive industrial chemicals in the environment and in our bodies were developed. But what are they actually? What's their chemistry? As we heard earlier from Scott Lasser, who's the water program director for Clean Wisconsin. PFAS, P-F-A-S, stands for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. Per- and polyfluoroalkyl substance. Enough said, right? Maybe not. Let's try visualizing what one of these molecules looks like then. Generally, PFAS is a class of molecules. There's a lot of different ones. But if you take just sort of a generic view of it, if you zoom way in really close and can see the individual atoms, it looks, at least in my imagination, a bit like a tadpole or a worm. The first part of the structure that all of them have is a tail. The tail of the molecule has all these carbon-fluorine bonds. That was Brittany Trang, who, when we talked, had just finished her PhD at Northwestern University and is now a science journalist at Stat News in Boston. So there's a string of carbon atoms, and each carbon atom has two fluorine atoms bonded to it. That's the worm, or the tail, if it's a tadpole. And the fluorinated tail is what gives it all the properties people make it for and use them for. This part of the chemical sort of repels water and things like that. That was Christy Remyakol. I'm an associate professor in civil and environmental engineering at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, I run a research group focusing on water chemistry. You also heard from Christy a bit at the beginning of this episode. So there's the tail, and then there's a head. And then the other part, the head group, is usually has a charge, usually a negative charge, but not always. And that part likes water. It helps it dissolve in water. So it, PFAS sort of have this dual nature where they both, they repel both like water and oil and stuff like that, but they also can accumulate in the water and accumulate on solid surfaces. That's a pretty unique property, but it's not the only thing that makes them really useful. The other thing about their structure that makes them really useful is that that carbon-fluorine bond is really, really strong, and these chemicals are really thermally stable. For example, if you think about PFAS, like in your Teflon pan, it's thermally stable, so it's great for cooking. It's going to repel oils, so it's really good for cleaning. You know, it's really, you know, that's why it has that non-stick component to it. The same thing if you think about PFAS and like, 
microwave popcorn bags or fast food wrappers and stuff like that. They're repelling that grease and also repelling water. And so they just, they're really good, you know, same thing in raincoats, they repel water. And so they're, that's why they're used in so many different things and they're so stable. So now you know what PFAS compounds are and why we find them all around us, why they're so useful. But if the story stopped there, so would this podcast, and you definitely wouldn't be hearing about them on the news. And all those same things are really, really a problem um, once these chemicals are out in the environment. Those carbon fluorine bonds are very strong, but more than just being strong, they are typically inert. So they typically do not react, and that's the overall problem. Um, And because of this, they will not break down in the environment. So they don't have a mechanism to naturally degrade in the environment. They don't have a mechanism to naturally degrade once they get into our bodies. And that's where they start causing a lot of problems. So they just start floating around in there and going places that they're not supposed to go. That's where we'll focus for the rest of this episode. Biologically, what happens when PFAS gets in our bodies? And we'll come back to their presence in the environment and how they move around our world, including through the watery pathways under our feet, next time. To guide us through the health impacts of PFAS, I spoke to a couple of really knowledgeable people. First, my name is Dr. Beth Neary. Beth is a pediatrician. And I'm also the co-president of the Wisconsin Environmental Health Network, which is a group of health professionals dedicated to informing future doctors, the public, and policymakers about the links between environment and health. And I also talked to Linda Birnbaum. I am a scientist emeritus at the National Institutes of Health, and I'm the former director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. I'm also the former director of the National Toxicology Program, and I'm currently a a scholar in residence at the Nichols School of the Environment of Duke University. Talking to Beth and Linda, I learned something important that sort of frames all the rest of this episode, but is also just generally true about human health. What we realize is that human health is closely tied to the environment. And what I mean by that is the air we breathe affects us, the water we we take in, our food. Our health is not just our genes, and our health is not just our environment. And I define the environment broadly. It is always an interaction of the two. And so when we think about health, a lot of times in medicine, people think about, okay, disease, illness, treatment. But if we really want to have an impact on human health, we step it back a few places and we think about what is causing certain diseases. Lifestyle issues, um, nutrition, you know, and diet, infectious agents, chemical agents, physical agents. Sometimes people forget that the drugs that we take or our over-the-counter meds are other kinds of chemicals, just like synthetic chemicals. What can we work on in the environment to diminish the amount of disease in society rather than be on the other end where we're just sort of always treating it? There are many, many different kind of determinants that make up our environment broadly defined, and they all interact with our basic genetic makeup. So, for example, you think about a child who has asthma. And if I know that child lives near a coal-powered plant, I know that child's going to have more episodes of asthma 
because of the location of where they live. So that's the link between environment and health. And PFAS are all over our environment, woven through the milieu of our lives and our clothes, our homes, our food, and the water we drink. But when it does get into our bodies, what does it actually do? Clearly increase cholesterol. Okay, so we know that it's affecting the liver. Other things that we're finding is, like I said, two specific kinds of cancer show up repeatedly, kidney and testicular. Then we also see effects on uh, pregnant women, uh, increased hypertension, blood pressure, effects on fetal growth. And the, the biggest one for me lately is reading some newer research on the effects on the immune system. And there's some really good studies that show decreased response to vaccines. So specifically, when we vaccinate children, they won't mount an antibody response like they should if they have higher levels of PFAS. And as we continue to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, Beth tells me we're learning more about the impacts of one specific PFAS called perfluorobutanoic acid, or PFBA, which in particular is used in stain-resistant fabric treatments, paper food packaging, and carpets, and has been found by the EPA to accumulate in agricultural crops and shows up in household dust, soil, food, and drinking water. There's one called PFBA, which is one of the shorter chain four carbon ones. So theoretically, it doesn't hang around as long, but it does get in the body. And what they found with that one is it has a predilection for the lungs. And so there was one study I read that showed that individuals who had higher levels of PFBA and COVID had worse cases of COVID. I think the point that PFAS are causing a multitude of effects by a multitude of mechanisms is an important concept. Which to me, I think, is maybe a little counterintuitive. In my imagination, when a chemical gets into your body, it does one thing. Like, on the good side, if you take an Aleve, it stops your headache, or you take a Claritin and your allergies go away. Or on the flip side, you eat some bad fish and you get food poisoning. A linear cause and effect. But in our complex bodies, it's not nearly so simple. We often, at least I would say historically, we want to say, you know, chemical A has one mechanism to cause an effect, but that is very rare. Most chemicals do more than one thing mechanistically. And we're beginning to learn that we're not often dealing with a linear pathway, but you're dealing with a network of effects. And this is especially true when it comes to PFAS chemicals. And we know these forever chemicals, they're ubiquitous in our environment, and we all have them in our bodies. And one of the, what I would say is problems with PFAS is we're finding that they have very many mechanisms of effect. That has to do with how the PFAS molecules actually interact with the cells in your body. Cells have receptors. It's how your body communicates with them. When these receptors are activated by chemicals, it changes how your genes are expressed in those cells. And changes in gene expression can bring about altered protein synthesis, altered changes and many other things. But that's kind of how our body works, just change gene expression and different things happen. One of the reasons that Beth was listing so many different health impacts earlier, besides that there are many different PFAS compounds that interact with your body in different ways, is that PFAS chemicals can hook up to a wide variety of these receptors. We now have evidence that PFAS 
can interact with at least 14 different receptors. And for example, these nuclear receptors, you may have more in one cell type than another. You may have more in males than females or vice versa. You may have more during development than you do during adulthood. So it increases the complexity of trying to understand how these chemicals can cause effects. In order to understand this complex chain of cause and effect, doctors and scientists have a few tricks up their sleeve. First are what they call mechanistic studies. This is what I think of as like stereotypical science, looking at cells under a microscope and seeing what happens when you expose them to different things. Can we find a similar pathway operating, for example, in human cells and, say, our laboratory cells? Just that you said an example. So trying to understand mechanistic similarity. Then there are the animal studies. When I see chemicals that cause a plethora of effects, in multiple animal species, both males and females, I think about the fact that people are a kind of animal. And why would we think that all people would be resisted? And a third way relies on big heaps of data. The human studies, which are the human observational studies, that's what epidemiology is. You are observing changes in a population. And It's much harder with environmental chemicals to identify a smoking gun when you're doing a population study. In other words, we know now, and there's lots of evidence that when you have bad air pollution, there's a lot more hospitalization that happens due to asthma attacks, due to heart attacks, due to respiratory problems. These human observational studies, the work of epidemiology, have been used to learn more about PFAS in a rather famous example. You might be familiar with the Mark Ruffalo movie, Dark Waters. The story there is that a factory in West Virginia was emitting PFAS into the local water supply. People started noticing increased rates of cancers and the loss of some farm livestock. The community brought a lawsuit. And they actually won the lawsuit. And as a result of that lawsuit, part of the settlement was they had to do a prospective study So they did a prospective study of about 70,000 people in this community and watched over a series of years to see what diseases showed up. And what they found was those diseases that they found that were linked, that they found that were linked to the PFAS were what they were finding in animal studies. So, and they found problems with the immune system, two specific kinds of cancer, testicular cancer, kidney cancer, um, elevated levels of cholesterol has showed up consistently in the research uh, related to PFAS, then some other things in addition. But so there's an example of there's an observation, someone takes it to a different level. And then from that, they had this study that came out, which is probably one of the best human studies that we have. The human study here confirmed what we'd learned from animal studies and mechanistic studies, which takes the certainty to the next level that it's not just a coincidence, but that it's actually the PFAS itself that's causing the adverse effects. When you see effects in multiple different populations and, you know, that have been studied by different investigators, often with different approaches, and you have 
both experimental and often wildlife data um, showing similar and related effects. And then you have mechanistic data. To me, that increases the likelihood that the associations that we see in our epi studies, in fact, are causal as well. Which leads us into a complicated situation. As we heard earlier from Paul, Scott, and Christy, PFAS do a lot of really useful things, and they were developed to replace things that were even more dangerous than they are. But they have some real consequences for our health. So now we know the basic chemistry of per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS, and what they do once they get in our bodies. But how do they get there? I said, by the way, I don't think you should be using that pump to water the garden because of the, the contamination from Johnson Controls or Tyco. One drop of PFAS can contaminate an Olympic-sized swimming pool, but one Olympic-sized swimming pool of PFAS can contaminate like the entire U.S. groundwater supply seven times over or something like that. And there's certainly been more than one Olympic-sized swimming pool PFAS produced. In Wisconsin, groundwater and surface water are really connected. So the water infiltrates and it, then it moves in the subsurface. We have lots of issues with rivers that have PFAS in them from wastewater treatment plants. That's the leak. That's next time on Under Our Feet. Thanks to everyone who graciously agreed to be interviewed for this episode. That's Jeff Lamont, Kayla Furton, Scott Lasser, Christy Remyakal, Paul Resnick, Brittany Trang, Beth Neary, and Linda Birnbaum. Thanks to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. You can join our community there starting at just a dollar a month. There's a link on our website, uofpod.org. Thanks to Anita, our most recent subscriber. Feel free to contact me at rudy at uofpod.org with any comments, questions, or feedbacks. We'll be back next time with more stories of PFAS on Under Our Feet.